they have, so we thank them for their meal. So the upcoming sessions for SACPA are listed on the website, www.sacpa.ca. So if you, if you like somebody else, uh, have a look at this talk that can go on the website. And the future talks are also listed on the website. So we'll invite people to come to the microphone and ask a question. Please identify yourself first and ask a question. And hopefully we'll have people pay attention then when we have the question. So if, um, if we have the first, well, first of all, I'll uh, welcome Dr. Weil back to the, uh, to the microphone. And we have our first questioner there. Thanks. Go ahead, please. Thank you, doctor. First of all, my name is Barb Phillips, and I'd like to thank you very much for that very informative talk. Um, I like the science. I've been trying to learn as much as I can personally, and I'm hearkened by this size of a crowd when last March and April, I believe it was, we went to the library for a session, sessions, five of them, I believe, with five different speakers from our community. And sometimes there was only 10 to 20 there. So I'm thinking our community wants to be engaged, needs to be engaged now. And so I'd like to ask you, how can we get our community of Lethbridge engaged with this subject? Because it is a crisis. We need to treat it as a crisis. And therefore, we need to stop the and I'm not going to use that term that our neighbor to the south tends to use. But there's a lot of misinformation out there in our community. And frankly, it saddens me when one of the speakers I heard when we went to the library session said that one of our law enforcement people as a solution had said, uh, let's just put a wall around Galt Gardens and let them have at her. Uh, that's not our solution. So what's your suggestion? Thank you. Well, thanks for your uh, comments there and question. Uh, you know, a question time is where I'm going to run into my limitations and not actually being an addictions professional, I'm afraid. Uh, but I'll, I'll try to answer that as best I can uh, as to, to what to do about it. I, I think, and, and this is why I'm here, that the most important thing is, is education. And I've shared some science here that I've tried to make simple and accessible but still relevant. And I think that grasping that and seeking opportunities to share some of that understanding with others is going to do a lot to help uh, transform the paradigm that the community takes in looking for solutions. I, I guess if you just look at this list that we have on, this, on the screen here and maybe ask yourself, what can I do in my role in the community that might help address some of this? And that's going to be different, I think, for every person. I, I think that uh, one of the key takeaways from what I've said is that good addiction treatment is going to need uh, good human connections. That's really something that especially a, a marginalized street living drug user lacks is meaningful positive human interactions. And I know they try to provide that at uh, dispensaries and the safe consumption site, for example. I, I, I spoke a little bit with uh, Tom Mountain. He's the South Zone Director of, of Addictions and, Men and Mental Health to see, to see if he could help me answer these questions. Uh, and one thing he told me about that was being considered is having uh, essentially uh, chaperones, people that get to know some of these 
uh, people using on the street and help guide them through the system. One of the barriers to treatment is that we have a lot of resources, but you have to go to appointments, you have to show up, you have to have transportation, and sometimes just getting into the door is a barrier for, for some of these people, and so having someone that can support them through that. So I would watch for opportunities there, uh, and uh, certainly if, if, uh, if you want to contribute financially, I asked him to. Uh, there's a lot of programs they're wanting to bring in place, but are having a hard time getting the, as always, getting the, the political motivation for some funding. Uh, the Chinook Regional Hospital Foundation has provided them with a lot of funds for many of their programs, so that would always be a, a place to donate if that's what you feel you're able to do. I hope that answers your question. The other thing is just to talk to people. You identify yourself. Pardon? Oh, Johanna Pritchard. I, I think just communicating with anybody. I was in the bank in the, the other day and somebody was laying under the machines. I don't know what that individual is using until I start communicating. I need to make sure they're okay because I'm human. So I had a conversation with him. He was sleeping there. Um, he asked me if he had to leave and I said, no, I don't make rules here. I'm just checking to make sure that you're okay. And I think then we're going to start to build relationships. People with addictions need relationships, not judgment. Anyway, my question is, based on judgment, mm -hmm. Dr. Wild, what's going on in ER now with regards to judgment? It's been brutal for addicts to access ER. We have deaths because people are scared to take their friends to ER, can you share with us what has changed so that we can encourage more and more to continue using somewhere where they're going to be judged? It's real, because if I show up to stand beside somebody, they are treated differently. So what's different today? Okay, well, that's a good question. I think that speaks to the tendency that we often have to, to judge those that we don't understand. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that that's the experience of a lot of people uh, coming to the department. It's a stressful environment to work in and to have to visit in most cases. Uh, so what's different? I don't know if I can tell you what, if anything, is different, except that uh, we are trying to, and some changes have been made over the past few years uh, in having uh, dedicated mental health nurses, uh, dedicated social workers working in the emergency department. There is the hope to have dedicated addiction specialists in the future that will be there. So we're hoping, and, and well, we're finding already that these people who are more trained to deal with these populations and these problems are usually able to connect with them better and make the experience a little more positive for them. So hopefully as we expand uh, the specialty training presence in the department, that'll help ameliorate that problem. And certainly ongoing efforts to educate our own staff uh, is, is always a good thing in that area too. Uh, thank you so much for making a difficult uh, topic uh, easy to follow. I think I agree with you, education is the key. Uh, I'm Bev Trainer, and uh, I have a tremendous empathy for the people who are addicted. But I go back to some of the things I learned at the University of Lethbridge. One is Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. 
and I think there are people in here who understand that. You have to have your basic needs met before you can move up the ladder to the quality of life that uh, you, you might be able to achieve. So my feeling is that yes, we've got uh, excellent programs here, but there's a whole gap. Unless these, there are people who are on the street who are addicted, who probably aren't going to be able to move too far towards self-actualization. I mean, first of all, you have to admit that, and that's just part of how it is. But they need homes, and they need a safe place to be, and I don't think the streets of Lethbridge are where they should be because they're, 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 they're not being treated fairly on the streets of Lethbridge, let's put it that way. So my question is, I, I would like to be able to get groups of people together who can start maybe planning so that these people can have their basic needs met. And whether that, uh, but a lot of people don't like to think in terms of, of uh, facilities where they can all be kept and get fed and get uh, like those basic needs met. But I, I can see that happening. Uh, and I would love to hear a lot of other people's ideas about how that can happen because it would save a lot of money, it would save lives, and it at least would be a step forward. So I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Thank you. I, I think you're absolutely right in needing to address those basic needs. Uh, and as we, we saw in the presentation, it's often the, the earlier life lack of having those basic needs met that it's primed a person for a severe addiction in the first place. So you're gonna have a really hard time treating it without addressing that injury and those factors. And uh, given that even just seeing the, the needles or the sites or the people that you used with in the past, that can trigger drug cravings as well due to these brain pathways, means that anything you can do to get them into a, a better environment is going to increase the chances of recovery. Now, as far as uh, how that looks, I don't know. There's, there's several different ways it could. Uh, I know that uh, a few years ago, Medicine Hat worked on a program to find housing for, for all its homeless population, and I really have no information on how it's going from that perspective. Uh, I do know they haven't shown up in the list of the most severe uh, substance use problems with us in Red Deer, but uh, I, I think that's definitely an avenue worth pursuing. Uh, both to provide shelter, uh, a stable environment, and a safe environment, uh, one where uh, you know, they're not gonna be subject to potential abuse or judgment by others around them, and are going to be able to, to be safe. All of those things will decrease those stressors we talked about that can trigger those addiction cravings. And this is a, a multifactorial problem and these multifactorial solutions, and everything that you can do to reduce those triggers for addiction is going to be, you know, one point in their favor. Hi, my name is Lori Schultz. Um, having worked in social work over the years um, and having to refer people to programs um, for addictions um, <clears throat> has changed, and this is just a context to my question. So that over the years, over the 27 years, the availability of those resources that we could refer to changed drastically. Um, in the in the Klein years, a lot of the ADAC program program programming, which was state of the art actually at that time, basically was 
another slash and burn. But that's just um, a comment that we can put aside. Um, what though, as a, as a physician, when, if, if someone was to say to you, I've had it, I really want help, where would you refer them? Do you just refer them to the social worker? What programs actually exist in Alberta that can really, that you can refer someone who wants to, to deal with it? Where can you refer them? What's out there? Thanks for that question. That's, that's, a, that's a question that us as emergency physicians are often asking ourselves, to be honest. Uh, and the answer right now is most of the time, yes, we will turn that over to the social worker who has a much better understanding and knowledge of that area and how to access it. So that's kind of what we're doing now. I know that even the resources they have for addiction treatment intake are not ideal. I refer, uh, re refer to that in, in acknowledging that a lot of the times we give people places they can go, numbers they can call, uh, we have the Alberta Mental Health Clinic downtown that does intake assessments and can connect with needed services. But there is a disparate group of organizations that may be helpful more or less in different cases. And that is one thing that we are lacking right now is a single point of access. And we've certainly brought this up as emergency physicians. We, at a department meeting recently, we spoke about this with our, uh, our director of, uh, of mental health. And, and they are... Uh, as you, as you probably know, there's a detox beds coming in uh, November that will be connected to the hospital. And the hope is that in conjunction with that, we can start having addiction specialists who help people get start the entry process into those facilities, working in the department with us. And what we want to have is just what you're referring to is kind of a single point of intake where we can refer someone, I, ideally maybe someone who can meet within the department, uh, but even just a, one place they can go that's accessible that will allow them to have an assessment done, have a needs assessment done to see which of the community resources are going to be most helpful for them. So you're right, that's a gap we have right now in the ability to do that. And part of the problem for us is we're there 24 hours a day. We do get people that say, I need help. It might be Saturday at 3 in the morning and, you know, come back Monday and uh, it's not going to happen. Thank you so much for your clear presentation, Dr. Wild. I'm Bev Mendel Atherstone. I'm a psychologist, <clears throat> or have been. <laughs> now I'm footloose and fancy free and retired. <laughs> um, I'd like to look at the preventive side. And uh, so my question revolves around um, parents who themselves have had difficulties and then going into that cycle of continuing um, neglect or whatever it is. It, it seems to me we, we need to be looking at supporting parenting for people who have a difficult time of parenting. Um, so that's one issue. The other issue is when, ch <clears throat> when uh, children of um, situations where they, they have not had, um, where they've either had neglect or abuse or PTSD and all these other things that you were talking about, I've just read that our mental health funding in Canada is three to five percent of our medical of our medical physical health funding. It seems like we should be funding mental health at a much greater rate to help people who have 
such early problems, and I wonder what is your uh, experience and your position on that. Thank you. Thank you. you. You bring up some great points, and of course, prevention is always better than treatment. Uh, and I think you've alluded to it in two different ways. Uh, one is uh, helping those, those families that are already dealing with a history of substance abuse and trying to raise children and hopefully an environment that will allow them to develop in a healthy manner. And you're right, they need, they need a lot of supports. Raising children is stressful enough as it is without all these added stresses. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what the best solutions are there. Um, and and it's, it's often heartbreaking in our work because we, we often encounter those situations where you know, we may need to get a child out of a, out of a situation. And it's good for the child, but it's also bad for the child because maybe we're taking them out of a, a dangerous situation. But by separating from the, them from that caregiver, even if the care wasn't ideal, we're perpetuating that, that psychological damage that can still predispose them to addiction in the future. So any way to, to make it work uh, better in the home is going to, to be the better solution. You spoke about uh, mental health funding as well, and I would agree with you that probably a lot of the, the money we spend on physical medical care uh, could, I guess I'm saying our expenses could be less if we had better mental health care because a lot of untreated mental illness and the consequences of it lead to a lot of the medical disease that we see. Prevention is always cheaper than treatment. It's the same for treating blood pressure and stopping smoking instead of treating a heart attack or uh, preventing a, a drug addiction and, instead of paying for an expensive treatment program. Harm reduction follows the same principle. It's, it's cheaper to distribute clean needles than treat a case of HIV. Uh, and I think that in one sense, we can look at improving our mental health budget uh, in that same vein. I would certainly be in favor of that. Hi. My name is Michelle. I don't want to sound like a redneck, but <laughs> I, I know how busy you are in, in ER. I, when I was listening to Johanna, I had to wait five hours for my mom, and, and she was dying. She had an infection. She was older. And, you know, and, and I'm not saying it was anybody in emergency's fault. It was just there was other people that they deemed more important than her. I, I think you must be overwhelmed. And I'm wondering if there shouldn't be two streams for the addicted um, people who are coming in with problems from addiction, uh, whether it's overdoses or... Um, and then, and for others, because really the ambulances are so busy now, you know, they're in code red lots of times, and, and there's lots of us out there with other problems. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that we don't have a crisis, but I'm saying that the rest of us need medical treatment as well. Can you respond to that? I'm sorry sure. if I sound, I don't, want, I don't mean to sound rude, I just, yeah, I've waited a long time in, in ERs myself. Mm -hmm. Yes, many people have. Yeah, uh. yeah. <laughs> And, and you're speaking, of course, to a, a general you know, resource issue uh, in healthcare. And while it's not the topic of my discussion today, I probably know a little bit more about emergency department crowding and, and the reasons that you have to wait a long time. And the reasons that you have to wait a long time in the emergency uh, usually have very little to do with the emergency department. Uh, in, a sh in, a, in a nutshell, if you want to have shorter wait times, you need to have better home care and more long-term care facilities in a community. We have beds in the hospital that are often filled with people who are not healthy enough to go home, but not sick enough that they need the hospital. And having better access to affordable, regular home care or long-term care facilities can free up a lot of those spaces, 
which in turn frees up spaces in the emergency department. Most of the time when there's a long wait, it's not necessarily how many people are there to be seen, but how limited our treatment spaces are in the department, uh, and that's the limiting factor. So if we free up that, uh, then that addresses some of that problem. As to your question about a separate tract for substance abuse visits, it's a little impractical to look at it that way. You could make the same argument for a multitude of the different problems that we see. Uh, we already have an area of the eMERGE that's a bit of a walk-in area where we try to see uh, the walk-in uh, small problems quickly that usually don't take much of our time once we're able to get to you. Uh, often the time the people that are waiting the longest are, as you described there, the people that might be sicker, need a bed, and we don't have a bed available. And so that's a... Uh, that's another problem, and I, I don't think that it's going to be uh, addressed by trying to triage people different directions based on why they're there. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Wiley. Maria Fitzpatrick. Uh, so I want to make a couple of comments. First of all, thank you for an excellent presentation. And uh, two of the things that you pointed out in your presentation was alcohol is the number one killer. You also had uh, uh, smoking addictions. And um, I worked 32 and a half years in corrections, and everybody in, who was ever on my caseload uh, smoked. And that was one of the addictions issues that they had to work with. Uh, and I say that because uh, I've been talking to people in my constituency, and um, most people understand that this is a community issue that we have to deal with as a community. But some people um, have said to me, let them die. And I'm appalled that they would say that. I was even more appalled when I turned around and there was an ashtray heaping full of cigarette butts because this person didn't think we should be uh, treating people who are addicted to drugs, but he felt that his medical stuff should be addressed. So mm -hmm. thank you for pointing that out. And I think our community needs to know that addictions covers way more than opioids. We just happen to be seeing the issue with opioids right now. Second thing I want to say is it takes a community to raise a child, and we've heard it forever. It also takes a community to deal with issues like this. And I know that we need more money in terms of surround uh, services, and I'm sure the mayor will probably talk about that in a bit. But um, when I worked in when I worked in corrections, uh, the normal practice was to call an offender by their last name, and I couldn't do that. I called every offender by their first name, and they all called me by my first name, which allowed me to have a connection with them so that I could uh, engage them in their own uh, correctional treatment plan. But it's, to, as Johanna had said earlier, you have to make a connection, and that responsibility is on every single one in the community. Uh, I know people don't want to do that, not everybody, but if we're gonna do that, it helps. So my question to you <laughs> is about uh, a comparison between an addiction to cigarettes and an addiction to opioids. We have the patch. We have a number of different things that people use when they're ready to get off cigarettes. Is there anything similar or any research being done to help people who are on 
uh, heavy drugs, opioid drugs. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your comments. Uh, so yeah, every drug addiction is a little different. And as you referred, alluded to there, some are more obviously destructive than others. Nicotine is clearly a severe addiction. The number of cigarettes most smokers need in a day uh, illustrates how often that, that craving hits and needs to be filled. Uh, but the damage it does is uh, long-term and slow to develop. And because it's a, a legal and, and something that's accepted in our society, uh, they don't have to run out and hide and find some way to get a cigarette every couple of hours. And I think that speaks to a lot of the, the difference in what we see. However, some substances do provide those, as I said, those stronger dopamine surges or they'll affect other neurotransmitters that tend to make them a little bit more habit-forming and a little bit uh, more difficult to resist. There are treatments uh, currently available and being researched for multiple different addictions. As these biological pathways are being discovered, and it's really been just the last probably 15 to 25 years that uh, science is starting to understand exactly what addiction does in the brain. Uh, it used to be they would dissect the, the brain of a, of a dead drug user and say, oh, it looks the same as the others. This must not be a problem with the brain. But as we can measure these neurotransmitters and, and visualize brain activity, we see that's not the case. Uh, but anyway, uh, so there are medications. Uh, methadone has been around for a long time, uh, and it, the, the role of uh, medications like methadone and suboxone is a new one, is to partially uh, supply that the body's demand for those endorphins. It, it binds to the opioid receptors in a kind of a steady, long-term way similar to how an antidepressant might raise your serotonin levels, uh, it, it, makes the, it makes the person feel a bit more normal, have a more stable level of, of uh, the medication in the system without inducing those highs which promote the addiction cycle. So methadone has been around for a long time. There's a lot of people in the community who are on it. Many are people who develop dependency to prescription opioids, and this has been uh, a safe way to get off and eventually in time to wean off that methadone as well. There, there are other medications that probably help in addiction, and I've just recently received some emails from the Alberta College of Physicians. They're uh, you know, surveying members and, and, and uh, looking at, at strategies to make it easier to prescribe these medications uh, in, uh, in more settings. Right now, it's a little bit restricted because these compounds could be abused, uh, although uh, much more difficultly than, than what we're seeing right now. Uh, and they require uh, regular medical care and supervision to be sure that it's done right. And so that, again, is a challenge to uh, address in a transient street population. So yes, there's treatments out there, and there's more in development as well. Uh, Terry Shillington, uh, thank you for your really uh, well-researched, thoughtful presentation. Uh, we're about to enter into a social experiment with the legalization of cannabis. And our table was curious how you viewed that. And do you see cannabis as maybe alleviating some of the pressure that leads to the opioid addictions, or alleviating it, or aggravating it, or irrelevant to it, just a separate issue? Or do these interlock at all? Sure, good question. Uh, yeah, so. In one sense, cannabis falls into a similar category as opioids in that it does have some medical uses. The, the proven medical uses for cannabis are, are not as well established as I think it's being used for, but, uh, but that's a research in progress. 
Uh, and in the same way, opioids are medically useful, but they can be substances of abuse. And certainly we, we do see a lot of addiction already to cannabis. It's very prevalent in our community, even uh, without being legal. Research suggests that out of the harmful drugs, cannabis is certainly on the lower end for causing acute harm. Uh, now, anything you smoke in your lungs is not gonna be good for your lungs. Uh, and as my, my one slide mentioned, there are some conditions people develop. Uh, one is intractable nausea and vomiting, uh, where people can't stop vomiting for days on end. We see that on a regular basis. And these people can't stop using it either, even after we tell them why they're having this. Uh, and uh, many mental health conditions can be exacerbated by cannabis, which can tend to push someone who's maybe borderline to some of those uh, psychosis-type symptoms. I am not aware of any way in which cannabis would help uh, alleviate other substance abuse. We already have lots of different substances of abuse. Many of them are used at the same time, abused by the same people, and I don't know that anyone is better off because they're using one as well as the other. Does that answer your question? Okay, we have uh, the last question, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kimberly Lyle, and I'm actually working with a number of people in the community right now um, assessing social assets and issues and trying to determine uh, dominant social issues in the community. And my understanding, and it was in the front page of the paper today, that meth is rapidly increasing as a, a drug of choice. Uh, what I've been learning is that for someone who was addicted to alcohol, meth is actually a lot cheaper. And so you have this transition of people going to meth because of the cost, the accessibility, the affordability, and that someone who is on a stimulant like meth is, is highly unpredictable, and, and this is where you end up with things like violence. So my, my question is, you know, we've talked about how do we as a community engage with folks and give them supports, but how do we also do that safely um, in, in light of meth maybe becoming our newest flashpoint? Well, that's the big question. <laughs> I'd be getting paid a lot more than lunch if I knew the answer. <laughs> uh, but you're right. Uh, I think that is probably one of the, the cost of a drug is one of the drivers for its dissemination in the community. Again, I'm hardly an expert on uh, drug distribution in black markets, but I think we saw the same thing with fentanyl compared to prescription opioids, which were generally hard to get and sold for a high price on the street. Uh, these labs could make these compounds relatively cheaply, and that's why we had fentanyl kind of laced into cocaine or marijuana or other drugs, and people who didn't know they were taking fentanyl were still overdosing on it. And it sounds like we're going to see something similar with meth. Uh, we, we often, I've, I've noticed uh, a cycle sometimes in the eMERGE that we'll see a, a rash of opioid overdoses, presumably when there's a bunch more available on the market, and then it kind of peters out, and then there's a spike in meth. There's, there's probably people that are just using what they can get, whatever's available at the moment. And I think the same strategies are going to be helpful for one drug as for the other. Specific medical treatments might vary, but overall the, the social and uh, cultural supports are probably the same. Hey, would you have a take-home message for us, a wrap-up? Did you have thoughts? one more question? No, no. <laughs> no? Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, take-home point, I guess, is that... Uh, Addiction is complicated, and it is a, a disease of the brain. It's measurable. Uh, we know it's there. And if you want to take home the, the probably the most effective both prevention and treatment, it's probably going to be related to positive human relationships. And I just leave that thought with you. Thanks. Thank you.
So we have uh, Mayor Spearman is going to give us uh, an announcement. It's really not a political message, it's really an invitation. So Kimberly mentioned the article in the paper today. We had a presentation to City Council on Monday and it was really four separate presentations on uh, basically what assets do we have in the community when it comes to the four pillars of, uh, of addressing the drug uh, issue. So what do we have in terms of treatment? What do we have in terms of prevent prevention and education? What do we have in terms of harm reduction? And what do we have in terms of enforcement? So that's generating the articles that are appearing each day in the newspaper. So what was, what was said to council on Monday? And also Lethbridge News now is generating an article a day on what was said to council. But the important message for the attendees today is next week on Wednesday and Thursday, October 10th and October the 11th at the what used to be known as the Lethbridge Lodge Hotel, it's now the Sandman Signature Hotel, uh, at 1 to 1.30 and at 5.30 to 8 p.m. we will have be having independently hosted community consultation sessions. So we want to hear from the community. We have, we'll have independent facilitators. How's the drug issue affecting you? What are your solutions? And uh, certainly, we don't want this to be a political process. We want this to be community feedback. But it would be good for you to be informed about what has been presented, what is available. The presentation today was excellent. Uh, so uh, the people who are informed, we'd certainly like to hear from you and we'd like to hear uh, constructive feedback from the community about uh, what we have going forward. So uh, our role when we get into the political realm is to advocate for what we lack in the city and we haven't stopped doing that, but certainly it'll be a lot better with community backing for the solutions. So I invite all of you to come next week, participate in the sessions, register ahead that you're coming and please participate. Thank you. Thank you.